1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. If you're able, would you stand, please, as we read God's word together? This is the Apostle Paul writing to the early church in Corinth. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If it is for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. Uh, From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title Sacred Bodies. Sacred bodies. A a quick parenthetical note. I found out that I was going to be preaching today on Thursday. Hannah Sobek Kim was supposed to be preaching today. He is under the weather. So I found out on Thursday I was going to be preaching. And and when I tell you that within like about 10 minutes, the structure of the sermon was just kind of there. The content needed to be filled in, but the structure was sort of there. So if this sermon feels a bit different, okay, you, you understand some of the backstory. Sacred bodies. How would you describe your body? Are there certain features you would begin with? Others you would avoid altogether? If someone asked you to describe your body, would you respond with pride or with embarrassment? Contentment or shame? Many of us, for a whole bunch of different reasons, don't love this question for the way that it makes us feel. But the problem with this question is actually deeper than how it makes us feel. The problem is in what the question assumes. See, if I ask you to describe your body, what I'm actually asking is for a description of you. Because there is no body without you. You are not separate or detached from the flesh and blood of your body. It's not that you have a body. It's that you are a body. You are a body. 
Now, that might sound strange because for a very long time, people have separated what they see as the essence of themselves from their bodies. Dualism separates the higher realms of spirit and soul from the lower realms of the material world, including our physical bodies. This spirit-flesh divide shapes many of our assumptions today like it did for the early church that Paul was writing to. The authors of the Apostles' Creed, the creed which we have been studying this summer, chose to include the belief about, quote, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, in order to reject that dualism. Deeply influenced by the Jewish insistence on the integrity of human persons, the early Christians rejected the cultural tendency to disparage embodiment. The thing, though, that most convinced the early church of the significance of humans as embodied creatures was their Lord's physical resurrection from the dead. Jesus did not have a ghost-like resurrection. There he was. The marks of his execution visible in his flesh. Nail scars. Spear piercings in his body. There Jesus was stoking a campfire on the beach and preparing an early morning breakfast for his disciples. And Jesus's enfleshed resurrection was not a one-time event. It had implications moving forward. It was evidence of what was to come. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul taught believers that they would be raised from the dead as Christ had been raised from the dead. In other words, because Jesus was resurrected in his body, we will be resurrected in ours. Now, most of us are very quick to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. It is the center of our Christian faith, the moment of God's victory over sin, death, and the devil. But ask any one of us about our own resurrection, our own one-day physical resurrection, and we get a bit fuzzier. Like maybe something about going to heaven. But it gets vague after that. And this is actually a problem. It's a significant problem. And I think there's two reasons for this problem of not being able to celebrate and get our imaginations around our own physical resurrection. Two problems. First, the dualism that the early Christians faced is still very much with us today. When we imagine the resurrection from the dead, we often think in spiritual terms rather than with the material stuff of God's good creation. And when we spiritualize the resurrection from the dead, it doesn't have much of an impact in our physical material life. Second reason that we struggle with the implications of the resurrection of the dead is that we are imagining something in the far, far, far off future. 
It seems so distant, so far away, so out there that we can't really get our heads around why it matters to us today. And this is understandable. Paul writes that Christ's resurrection is the pattern for our own future resurrection. When Jesus returns to consummate his victory, the dead in Christ will be raised. The living will raise to welcome their returning king. But the problem with leaving our resurrection out there in the future is that it loses its ability to influence how we live right now. Does that make sense? Throughout Christian history, disciples of Jesus have discerned how to follow Jesus by remembering that history ends with the resurrected Christ returning and raising all of his followers to eternal embodied life. In other words, knowing how the story ends brings clarity as we live out our own messy complicated parts in the middle of the story. Knowing that Christ will resurrect us in the flesh one day changes how we treat our embodied selves and the embodied selves of the people sitting next to you swatting bees around right now. It changes or it's meant to change how we live. So I want us to consider some of the implications of the resurrection of the body. What if we assume with scripture and the early Christians that our God created embodiment matters? And what if we let the resurrection of the body influence how we live today? What would that look like? Well, one answer to those questions is, what I will offer us as my main takeaway in this sermon. It's this. We honor our bodies as sacred because God will raise us from the dead. We honor our bodies as sacred because God will raise us from the dead. Something that is sacred has been set apart for God. It has been consecrated. This is what has happened to us when we give our lives to Jesus. To say that we are sacred means that how we live as embodied people can never be cheap, derisive, or profane. You are not disposable or dispensable. Everything about you, created as an enfleshed image bearer of God and destined to be raised again in your glorified flesh, everything about you shimmers with hallowed meaning. So, let's consider a few of the ways we can honor our bodies as sacred in light of the fact that God will raise us from the dead. We could compile a very, very long list of implications. I've got time maybe for five. And, and, and these will not be comprehensive. Uh, these will be little hints and suggestions, teasers. I offer these five implications as a way to get us thinking about how the resurrection of the body changes how we live today. Are you with me? 
I hope that you walk out of here and go, and here's another implication, and here's another implication, and here's another implication. These fives are just the beginnings of ways for us to think through some of these implications. So, first, a first way we honor our bodies as sacred, because God will raise us in our bodies, is through our relationship with creation. Creation. We are physical creatures, and we move through our lives engaging with the rest of the physical creation. That seems patently, clearly obvious. But so important is this fact that you are a physical creature that that when God wanted to rescue the world, what does God do? But take on our physicality. The God who exists beyond any materiality takes on human flesh so that you and I could be healed and rescued and saved. So central to our identity, to how we move through the world, is our enfleshedness that Jesus, the Son of God, takes it on himself. And we go, yes, 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 yes. Got it. That's good. Clear. Not that complicated. Here's the thing. More and more, our world, our society bends away from embodiment and toward disembodiment. Now, this is not a particularly new phenomenon. One of the ways to understand what race is, is for how it removes us from the physical stuff of creation. So that no longer is it a particular place which defines you and its history and its tradition and its culture and its ethnic particularities and its cuisine and its stories and on and on. And now what's important about you is where you fit on this made-up hierarchy of more to less human. It's a disembodying force. Of course, the amount of time that you and I spend on screens every day also bends us away from a world of physicality and materiality and embodiment. And though technology promises to bring us closer together because now I can stay in touch with people across the country and around the world, if we're honest, the impact of the amount of time we spend on screens at work for social stuff, binge-watching, whatever, at the end of the day has a distancing effect with the materiality of relationships and place. Are you, are you with me? So we're created for relationships with an embodied creation, but our, our, our world, our society has a way of pulling us away from that. So we can do a couple things. We can prioritize our relationship with God's creation, with God's non-human creation for one. You all know, you hear me say, like, you can get to know the the trees around, you know, where you live. You can learn what that bird is that you kind of wakes you up annoyingly every morning. We have a bunch of eastern starlings. Anybody know what those are? They're not native to this country. They came from Europe. They are so loud. And they love to nest in kind of like porches. And so... You know, when we start to open our windows in the spring, that's exactly when they're showing back up again. And it's like 4.30 a.m. They're tuning up. At the very least, I know what to call them now. You know, I don't, it's not just the birds. It's the, the European starlings who are driving me bananas, right? So, so there, there are little ways that you and I can start to just push back against that disembodying 
detaching tendency. We go like, oh, I know the name of that tree whose leaves I'm raking up in the fall or that bird. Or, or yeah, I, I, I know, you know, kind of how the weather patterns have shifted over time in Chicago, how it used to be a lot colder in the winter than it is now and how that. Has. So we, we pretty easily can do that. But we can also prioritize relationship with community. Now, we talk about community relationships a lot as a church, so I want to highlight just just one aspect of community. We can prioritize relationship with non-married community. What what, what do I mean? Marriage in Scripture is incredibly important for lots of different reasons, including for how it points beyond the relationship itself to the love of God for the world. Scripture tells us that that marriage is meant to testify to the world of God's love for the world. In the way that wives and husbands love each other, in that is a witness to God's love for the world. Which is awesome, beautiful, yes, and amen. The scripture also tells us that after the resurrection of the body, when Christ returns, there will be no more marriage. Jesus is is very explicit, very blunt about this in Matthew chapter 22. For in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So marriage is temporary. Marriage is for now. Marriage is for between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. And it points beyond itself to the love of God for the world. What, What does this mean? It means that for for Christians, in the same way that that marriage points to something beyond itself, so too does the single life point to something beyond itself, which is to the resurrection. To that moment, to that day, when there will be no more giving or being given in marriage any longer. Why? Because now we are united fully with God face-to-face and experiencing relationship with God in the context of the community of the people of God. So just as the vocation of marriage points beyond itself, the vocation of singleness points beyond itself as well. And because we're talking about the resurrection of the body, one of the ways that you and I can can grow in this is to prioritize non-marriage community. Now, what does that look like? Well, you all figure that out. Because it looks a lot of different ways. Whether you're single, whether you're married, but our community together has to prioritize loving relationships and communal engagement with those who are living into their vocation as single people. Why? Because they point all of us, that vocation points all of us to the resurrection of the body. Can I get one or two amens? Again, I'm not saying marriage is not important. Marriage is important. But there is a particular and important role that this uh, this vocation of singleness plays as we grow into uh, an appreciation of our embodiment as the resurrection of the body calls us to. Number two, we honor our bodies as sacred through our relationship with sex. See, I was going to have you like say each word as I went through. And then I was like, nah, that would be like, yeah, creation, creation, sex. Okay, so, so as we honor our bodies, that includes honoring our embodied sexuality as well. Because you and I, everybody moves through the world as sexual creatures. To be created by God is to be created as People with sexuality. God created people with sexual difference, female and male. And there's no indication in Scripture that those differences disappear after Christ's return in the resurrection of the body. Even as the desire for marital love after the resurrection is surpassed by the better desire for union with God among God's resurrected people. So what does that mean? 
a, a relationship with sexuality, which honors the sacredness of our body. Well, again, super long list. We could spend all day coming up with, with ideas here. Let me just very briefly suggest two. First, for Christians who are learning to, to treat their bodies as sacred, we will realize that honoring our sexuality does not require sex. That sexuality is, is to be honored regardless of whether sex is happening or not. This, this is a... Boy, we could spend so much time on this. But when you read church history, what you, what you come to understand is that from the very beginning, Christians understood that as important as marriage was, that the, the, the celibate person living to the honor of God was also fully, completely living out their identity as a child of God. They were not lesser because they were celibate. In fact, in many ways, their vocation pointed, again, beyond themselves to the resurrection itself. Now, that is so different than how our society operates. Like, when was the last time you saw a portrayal in media of a single celibate person that was honoring to that person? Like, it just doesn't exist. It's a completely different way of understanding sexuality and sex. Sexuality, which is not being expressed in sex, is somehow diminished or warped or oppressive. We, we, we could go on, right? But again, throughout Christian history, Christians have understood that to honor the sacredness of our bodies is to honor our sexuality, which does not require expressions of sex. Second... Honoring our bodies as sacred will mean that we honor sex as sacred as well. That sex will never be instrumentalized, will never be treated as a tool, will never be diminished beyond the sacredness that God gives it for those who understand the sacredness of our bodies. There's a new movie coming out about Flannery O'Connor. Uh, that's directed by Ethan Hawke. Anybody know about this? Anybody heard about this? And his daughter is in the movie. Maya is her name. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's cool. And then this week I bumped onto an article that said there's, there's two explicit sex scenes in this movie that Maya is, is a part of. And so the interviewer asked her dad, asked Ethan Hawke and, and his daughter, said, is, was that weird to you know, direct your daughter in this explicit? And they were both like, no not at all. Just normal. Just like the rest of acting. And I was like, well, that's a lot of things. <laughs> and also interesting for the assumptions that it reveals behind what sex is. Right? You and I move through a world that has instrumentalized sex, which has said sex can be participated in and engaged in lots of different ways without there being any particularly deep, relational, sacred meaning to it. But for those of us who understand that our bodies are sacred, we will also understand that sex itself is sacred, which, which helps then when, to, to understand when the Apostle Paul writes something earlier in the letter to the church in Corinth like this, shun sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? It's very understandable why in a, in a society like, like ours, Christians are understood to be kind of prudish about sex. It, it's, we, I get that. 
But it's important that we understand that the reason that we think the way we do, that we live the way we do, that we engage with others in the way that we do, that we engage with our own bodies in the way that we do, is because we understand that our, that our bodies are sacred, that our bodies are a gift to us, that our bodies have been consecrated because our whole selves have been consecrated to God. Does that make sense? So what's the application here? Just notice the entertainment that you're watching. Just start watching, reading, listening with a bit of a kind of critical lens. And just ask yourself, what are the assumptions behind how sex and sexuality are being portrayed here? I'm not telling you what to watch, what not to watch, what to listen. I'm trying not to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But the invitation for you is to just, as a Christian, be reflective. As you're watching, as you're listening, ask yourself, what are the assumptions underneath this? And how do they line up with or not? My assumptions as a Christian about the sacredness of bodies and the sacredness of sex. Third, we honor our bodies as sacred through our relationship with weakness. With weakness. Bodies are weak. We get sick. We get wounded. We get anxious. I went to bed at 8.30 last night, and I fell asleep at about 8.45. Like, I need sleep. Some of you are like that with food. I'm not like that with food. Some of you, like, like you go, go eat something, and then let's finish this conversation. <laughs> Our bodies have all sorts of different frailties and weaknesses to them. Some of them are just inherent to humanity. Some, some of them have to do with the, the wounds that we pick up along the way. As we get older, our bodies feel different, don't they? You look in the mirror and your body looks different than it used to look. I got a new bike recently and it's got a basket on the front. It's like my around the neighborhood bike. And I rode my bike up to a coffee shop and I'm in, they, they, they have like an outdoor counter. And so I order my coffee and the woman who's serving me my coffee, she goes, oh, that's a nice bike. Now she is much, much younger than me. You get to a certain age and you don't know how much younger people are anymore. I'm like, High school student or graduate student, I don't know, but she's definitely younger than me. I'm like, oh, yeah, this this person likes my bike. And she goes, my dad would love that bike. I was like, oh, that's helpful for me to remember how you see me is different than how I see myself in my memory. Our bodies are weak. In lots of different sorts of ways. We live in a society that tends not to honor the weaknesses of bodies. In the same way we instrumentalize sex, we treat bodies as machines. And so food is treated like fuel. And if you're, if you're going to rest, you're going to recharge. And our governments measure the health of a society, not through our happiness or our contentment, But through our what? Our productivity. We breathe air. We hear stories. We we move through this world being told that our bodies are machines. And and so we we learn that rather than being honest about our weaknesses, we got to downplay those things. We have to hide those things. We have to push past those things. And so some of you leave vacation days on the table every single year. And others of you, whenever you actually start your vacation, you're sick for the first half of it. Because your body's like, well, it's about time. I need to 
get put back together, right? There will come a day at the resurrection when our bodies are no longer weak. And it's that, it's that future orientation which allows us to honor the, the weaknesses in our bodies today. See, as, as a pastor, I probably know more about the weaknesses in this room than anybody else. I know where there's marriage struggles. I know where there's anxiety. I know where there's struggles with infertility. On and on and on. I know where there's chronic pain. I know where there's depression. And that's how it should be. Pastors are called to walk with women and men through those places. But it cannot stop with the pastor. Amen? If the church is being the church, living in light of the resurrection of the body, then we will be a community that honors one another's weaknesses. You'll be able to show up here and be honest. Or you at least have some people here who you'll be able to be honest with. This is the loop right now. This is the fatigue right now. This is the addiction right now. This is the struggle with sin right now. This is is the weakness right now. And and here's here's the incredible thing. When you're honest about your weakness, it gives me permission to be honest about my weakness. I need to be a part of a community that's not just striving all the time. That's not just hustling all the time. That's not just winning all the time. Like, I need to be a part of a community where I go like, oh, you too. Oh, so I can be honest as well then. Oh, you're, you're honoring your weakness? That gives me permission to honor my weakness as well. I see you taking the time to get healed that you need. That gives me permission to take some time to find healing that I need as well. I see you normalizing going to therapy. Well, maybe I can go to therapy as well. A community of people living in light of the resurrection of the body will be a people who honor the weaknesses that are inherent to our body. There's a whole nother sermon here that I'm not going to preach about the way that when we honor our weaknesses, we're actually testifying to the way that Jesus took on our weaknesses. That the reason we can be honest about our weaknesses is because Jesus came in the flesh and in his weakness and perceived foolishness defeated the powers and the authorities of sin, death, and the devil. I'm not going to preach that sermon right there. But that's a part of it as well. Fourth, we, we honor our bodies as sacred through our relationship with prayer. Prayer is a funny one uh, because, again, people formed in a dualistic society and culture think about prayer as spiritual. And so we say, well, you can pray anywhere. Yes, yes, yes. You can pray quietly. Yes, 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 of course. But that's where a lot of us leave it. But if we are fully embodied people, then any act of prayer involves our body. Amen? There is no praying without your body. It's just not possible. So, so here's, the, here's the good news. Prayer is one of the, I think, the easiest ways to, to start intentionally honoring the sacredness of your body. I think there's some, some easy things that we can each do here. So here's one thing I'm doing. Once or twice a week, as part of my morning devotions, I will pray from a, a prayer book, which is mostly psalms. And as, I've done this for a few years now, and then recently I read that when monks and nuns use these prayer books, they're always praying out loud. And the person said, so if you're using this in your own devotional life, maybe try praying out loud too. I was like, that's kind of weird, you know, like just me. But I started doing it. And you know what? I'm way more focused. <laughs> I remember more. 
I am conscious that I am praying as I pray out loud. So that's easy, right? That's, that's easy. Maybe just once or twice a week in your time of prayer, just pray out loud. And if, if you're like, I don't even, just read a psalm then. Because psalms are prayers. And let that be your psalm. The second really, I think, easy thing we can do is to consciously bring our body. But you know what I mean. You are a body. We br- like, be aware of your embodiedness when you come to worship. Again, one of the things that dualism does is it, is it separates us and it says what's most important about you is maybe your emotions or your thoughts or, or, or your intellect. And those of us who have really drunk deeply from that well, we come to worship and we're like, why do I need to clap my hands? Like we literally, what, Sharice, what was the first song that we sang today? And what was, what was, the, first, what was the first line? Hands up. Hearts open. Now, I'm not going to ask Sharice this question, but how many of us actually lifted up our hands when we were singing that song? That's, that's kind of weird when you think about it, right? The song literally is saying we're lifting our hands. And some of us are like, oh, my heart is open wide to the sky. And, and the way that we've typically talked about that is like, well, that's just personality differences you're more introverted, you know, you're probably, you know, or cultural differences. Like, well, if you grew up in this kind of church or this community, then you're more likely. But when you read the Bible, there's a whole lot about bodies in worship. People like crying out and shouting and weeping and speaking in tongues and raising their hands and all of the rest. We don't all have to do the same thing with our bodies in worship. But if we are not consciously, spontaneously engaging with our bodies in worship, then we are missing out on something about prayer. We pray with our whole bodies. So we're going to sing one more song at the end of this. If you're one of these people normally, like maybe be, be this person, right? Just something that says, oh, I, I am a whole person and my whole person matters in worship and in prayer. And so I will choose... Are you with me? Okay. Fifth. Oh, wait, sorry, one more. Oh, I almost forgot this one. So what did I say? I said uh, uh, praying out loud, bringing your whole body to worship. Some of you are going to wish I forgot this one. (laughs) Fasting. (laughs) Here's my hunch. Those of us who have been most deeply impacted by a dualistic culture have the hardest time fasting. Like, well, I, I can pray without fasting. I can follow Jesus without fasting. I can read my Bible without fasting. Those who have the most integrated understanding of their whole selves, again, this is my anecdotal experience, are quickest to understand the connection between prayer and fasting. Yeah, of course there's going to be seasons where I abstain, where I fast, where I set aside as a way to participate in the life of prayer. That's all I'm going to say about that. Because you all know, if you've been around, that we do invite our church to seasons of fasting. So I invite you to think about that. The next time you hear that invitation, what what for you is that invitation for? Last, we honor our bodies as sacred through our relationship with shame. I, I feel like kind of shame is sort of the unnamed thing in a lot of what we've been talking about already. Anytime we talk about bodies... Shame is usually somewhere in in the picture. For for many of us, our bodies carry memories of shame. And again, exacerbated by a society that divides body and spirit, 
some of us find ourselves kind of looking at our bodies as something separate from ourselves. Something distant from ourselves. Some of us, when we experience shame, we actually hold our bodies at a distance from ourselves. And there's actually, there can be good reasons to do that. Like like a, a trauma response sometimes requires some distance as we find healing and reconciliation in our own bodies. This can be especially true when it comes to sexual sin or sexual trauma, the way that we kind of distance ourselves from our bodies. But it's not limited to that. For some of us, it's our relationship with food. Uh, A a certain smell or taste or sound can bring you right back to a a kind of dysfunctional family environment. Some of you, you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you see a parent who just consistently lets you down. So our our, our bodies can can have a, a, a way of betraying us almost. Like, it feels like my body sneaks up on me and then lets me down. And the shame comes rushing back in. It feels like my body is not trustworthy in some way. So that's all real and true. But what we cannot miss is that when Jesus comes to heal us and save us and reconcile us, he comes to do all of that in embodied people. Jesus is not interested in saving your spirit, saving your heart, saving your mind. Jesus came to save you. Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And if that includes ecosystems and weather patterns and animal populations, then you better believe it involves your body too. He's come to heal and reconcile and put back together everything that makes you, you. To transform our bodies from sites of shame to places of sanctification. Of experiencing the tender holiness of our God working itself out in our very bodies. Which means then, and this is a tender invitation. That moments of shame, rather than being things that push us away from our bodies, can become invitations to draw closer to our Savior with our whole embodied self. Rather than kind of detaching ourselves from ourselves, that experience of shame can become an invitation over time to draw near to our Savior as whole embodied people. So application. Next time shame creeps up on you, and my guess is just by talking about what we've talked about this morning, some of you have felt it at different moments in the service. The next time shame creeps up on you, don't distance yourself from your body. Instead, draw near to Jesus, who is already right there. Jesus, who took on your flesh to rescue you from every source of shame you have ever experienced and ever will experience. Draw near to Jesus as the enfleshed person you are. And then just open yourself up to the grace of Jesus that is inexhaustible and which he will always pour into our whole selves as we ask for more of it. Church, the God who formed Adam and Eve, our very first parents, into their embodied selves from the dust of the ground, female and male, in the image of their creator. This God does not discard 
our bodies. Shaped as we have been by these views that separate spirit and flesh, which have denigrated and commodified and exploited bodies, it's understandable why some of us would look for a God who rescues our spirit from the griefs and the aches of our body. So let me remind us in closing that God doesn't make mistakes. Does anybody this morning know that God doesn't throw away anything he creates, no matter how much we've messed things up? Does anybody know this morning that what God begins, he finishes? That what God promises, he always fulfills? Your flesh and blood are a promise. Your body is a promise. A promise made by God for a life with God. Scripture tells us that when God created our first parents, he stepped back and proclaimed that the works of his hands were not just good, they were very good. And some of you, you can read that and you're like, yeah, that's beautiful. That's amazing. Can you apply it to yourself? Do you know that God steps back and looks at you and says the same thing about you? He is good. She is good. And not about a part of you. Not about a portion of you. Not not, not the part of you that you are most proud of. God doesn't proclaim your goodness about what you wish were true about you, about what you hope will one day be true about you. No, he looks at the very intricate weave of muscle and memory, synapses and secrets, height and hope, and he says, I made that. I made you, and you are good. You're good. So good did our God think that you were that he became flesh and blood himself. He stepped into our embodied experiences, longing and grieving, aching, weeping, rejoicing, sleeping, resting, suffering, dying. And into his body, our perfect Savior took the sickness of our sin and shame so that our embodied selves might be healed through his grace and forgiveness, mercy and reconciliation. If God so loved your embodied self, who are you to treat your body with anything less than holy awe And sacred wonder. Your body is a promise. A promise that there is nothing that has been torn apart that God will not mend. Nothing that has been severed that God will not heal. No one who has been demeaned or diminished or dehumanized who will not be honored as the sacred image bearer of God they truly are. I think that's good news. So I want to give you two or three minutes of that good news 
in your body, bringing it in reflection and prayer to God. We'll close and worship in a few minutes, but um, I'm inviting you to do what you need to do to notice that you are an embodied image bearer of the living God in this minute. You can sit right where you are. You can kneel. You can move around, whatever you need to do. To hear the gospel of grace applied again to your particular embodied self.